You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. In India, I met farmers whose crops have been literally washed away by historic flooding. In America, I have witnessed unprecedented droughts in California. In Greenland and in the Arctic, I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And how we answer will have a profound impact on the world that we leave behind, not just to you, but to your children and to your grandchildren. As a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Hey, Angie. So, just an update for the listeners. Last week, we didn't do a news segment. You were on death's door with the flu, or you felt like you were on death's yeah, door. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't believe it was the flu. I don't know if I've ever had the uh, flu that bad before. I thought, I've had Giardia in Africa and and in uh, Ecuador one time. Scary. <laughs> and this yeah. this was almost as bad. So, it was, yeah, uh, yeah I don't, it was, it was something. That's why you get the flu shot. I mean, and I know the flu shot doesn't sure, cover everything, sure. but I, I did get, so I got the flu shot in uh-huh. Florida in last November. And then when we got to New Zealand, we got another flu shot because the different strains around the world. So like the, the ones I get here from like Asia, the ones in Europe, the ones in North America. So you get like a whole cocktail. Well, I should, you know, and I should, but the running joke in my family, uh, well, pretty much between my husband and I is I, I just don't get sick. I have the immune system of a goat. I'm yeah, yeah. tough as nails. And so of yeah. course, uh, John yeah. had to rub it in a little bit. He's like, oh, I thought, yeah, I thought you never get sick. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't, yeah, but I when know, I do, I know, it's I like know. the world is over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're back. You're back. Mm-hmm. And. 
So Angie and I were talking. So what we're going to do with the format of the podcast for now is we're going to guarantee you two episodes a week. We have just been getting a little bit overwhelmed trying to do three a week with these interviews. We, we have a lot of great interviews scheduled coming up. And between those and editing and getting that pushed out and then doing the news, it just got a little much. So what Angie and I are going to do is we're going to guarantee you two episodes a week, no matter what. We'll have a new species. And then we will have either news or an interview later in the week. And that way, you know, you can listen to some other great podcasts out there and we don't take up all your time, but we do appreciate it. Yes. And, and some, someday if we can figure out how to get all of our ducks in a row, we would love to podcast even more for everyone, but that'll take a little bit more organization for Chris and I. We're still new to this game and trying to figure it all out. So keep up with the support and the love and don't listen to any other podcasts. I don't know what Chris is talking about. I no, I mean, you know, to be broaden your horizon. Yeah, they can listen to Corbin's or some other ones because we're, you know, we got some stuff coming. Animals to the soon, Max so. is the bomb. If you have not yeah, checked yeah, that yeah. out, please check that out. Yeah. He's brilliant and very funny and very knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Energetic. You know, it's what you yeah, need yeah. in the morning. It does. It really gets me going when I listen to him talk. And then just also, you know, we're 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 coming in on the year anniversary and of our podcast, and so we're gonna really, you know. Angie and I are hammering some things out to make sure this is a very long running show. And then, yeah, Angie, you know, if, if once we're making millions, then we can hire people to do all that extra work. And then that's right. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I, I could do five podcasts for a week because all I do is show up and talk, which we all, if, yeah. if you're listening and listen long enough, you, everybody knows yeah. that I could probably talk to a wall. So yeah, it's yeah. poor Chris that he does all the editing. All the website. This guy is yeah, amazing. Takes... So make sure and give him, oh, thank you. Give him some love and some shout outs. Cause yeah, yeah, it's great. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. You're really it's good fun. at it, but it is, it is very time consuming here. And cause you do, it you, is, you it, like, is it is, it is. Or we like to put out a, pro- a good product, which means AKA yeah. you have a, the laborious part. <laughs> so that, you know, moving on to this week in conservation, I think you had some good stories, right? There's, I've got a mixed bag. I've got some interesting stories, sad stories, good news stories. So let's start off with, with something good that you found. Yeah. Well, some, some great news. Everybody knows, uh, or if you don't by now, you should know that I'm a big fans, a uh, fan of yes. hoof and horns and antlers. And so great news out of Belfast, uh, Northern Ireland. This, uh, just recently, Miss Betty Bantu. She's a mm. blessbach calf. She was born at the zoo there. And for those of you that most people, there's a lot of hoofstock in Africa. Even me, I like to think that I'm good at all knowing all my gazelles and antelopes. It, it, it is even hard. I have to have the guidebook out, whatever region I'm in, making sure that I know what I'm spotting. And so for those of you that aren't familiar, familiar, we will cover it sometime, but a blessed box is a gorgeous medium sized antelope, uh, dark brown in color with white underbelly and white almost mm-hmm, leggings, mm-hmm. like stockings. And then it has a beautiful, thick, white blaze okay. down its face. For anybody who knows horses, that's really a sought-after mm-hmm. marking because it's just so pretty with the the white, the big, wide, white stripe, stripe down the face. And, of course, being an antelope, it has two uh, brilliant mm-hmm. horns that stick up. And the blesbach were almost hunted to extinction years ago. And so they've made a nice rebound, probably due to conservation efforts. Yeah, yeah. And this calf, Betty Bantu, <laughs> is the 11th calf, the 11th calf 
born at this right. zoo throughout the years. So kudos yeah. to you, Belfast Zoo. I don't know if we have any friends in Northern Ireland, yeah. but hopefully we do now. Yeah. Um, but I like what you do and I like what I see because this calf is just super cute. Yeah, I know. We got some listeners in the UK and, and around there. So hopefully they do. And yeah, it's weird because it's good news because again, an endangered species, the interview we've got coming, I remember listening to, to, the, the person that Angie interviewed is a big, big, amazing, awesome. Yes. It was a great interview. And, My new BFF. And I really, one thing that stuck out with me on that interview and I, and I can't wait to post it and hopefully next week we get to post it is he was talking about, we don't want these animals in captivity, but we might have to bring them or we're bringing them into captivity because, or under human care because they're going extinct in the wild, right? So when you right. hear these endangered species have successful breeding as a reproductive physiologist, it's really good news for us. Sure. Absolutely. And the Blesbach, I don't know how, uh, if they were ever endangered or I don't, they were never mm-hmm. critically endangered, I don't think, but their numbers were way down probably due to hunting right. uh, and poaching right. and of course uh, meat eating. So yeah. So it's great that their numbers are least concerned now. They're doing great. And it's they're just a beautiful sight to behold, both in Africa or in Northern Ireland. Check them out. Right, right. So uh, this one, Angie, uh, it's it's pretty funny. Let, let's. This is something new too, because we usually always cover exotics. This is going to endangered breeds of horses. So Ooh, we're sticking with we're sticking with the hoof. Theme yes, today. the hoof thing. Awesome. And this one is really cool because it can't. It, I've got my horse book coming out in a couple months and this was one of the breeds I covered. And I, I didn't, after doing all my research to write that book and, and researching the breeds I know now about it, but the, the title of this article is, is the great British Shire horse about to go extinct? Cool. So, the Shire horse. Yeah. So one of the, it's the largest horse in the world. Let, mm-hmm. let me just put that out, out first. And, and, uh, and let me take, get an excerpt from my book and I, I looked this up. Shire horses are known as the, the largest horses in the world. So the largest horse ever measured was a horse named Mammoth. <laughs> I love he was it. born in the year, yeah, 1846 in the UK or in England. He stood 21.2 hands, which is a measurement in, in the horse world or 219 centimeters. Or for us in, in the States, it's over seven feet at the wow. shoulder. Jeez. Seven feet tall at the shoulder. Uh-huh. I like horses, he, but not he oh, weighed. Guy. That's big. Yeah, seven feet. He weighed an estimated thirty-four hundred pounds or fifteen hundred kilograms. So he was like massive. three horses, basically. He's huge, huge. So it, it was interesting because you know doing all these these breeds and breeds of the world, and you know how horses were evolved in Asia and Europe and Africa, and then the ones that they brought to the New World, you know, in, in North America and South America. Shires were just one of the ones I, I looked into. So what happened is these were working draft horses, right? That's kind of where their history was. In the agrarian times, like after medieval times, when it really everybody became farming communities and kind of settled down, rather than small plots like these larger farms, heavy horses became really, of really course. important. So they bred mm-hmm. tons of them. And they pulled carts. Like that's how you got around. Instead of cars, everybody had a horse or a donkey or a pony, you know, to, to get from point A to point B or pull carts and things like that. So in 1900, it was estimated there was a million Shire horses 
just in the UK That's alone. That's a lot of horse. Like work. Yeah. Yeah. But they were part of, you know, that was mm-hmm. your car, right? Or that was your, your cart or that's how you Oh, it was so farm. cute today. Uh, Xander says to me, he's like, yeah, we could live on a farm and not have a car and just ride horses everywhere. <laughs> and I just was yeah. like, son, son of mine, I love you so. <laughs> yes. I know. I know. It would be cool to go back to that too. To yeah. Until to I need to go to Trader Joe's I do to get like the... some specialty ice cream yeah. or something. <laughs> and I'd be like nuts. Because literally you would have to go get your animals, hook them up to the cart, which takes forever, drive down to the store, which will take See, forever, park well, your cart. Well, I actually envision it because I love riding so much. I envision myself just galloping through the streets, yeah. like get there. I don't need I don't need a cart. I would just need a saddlebag. But then I'm thinking, oh, I yeah. need a saddlebag with ice for like so my ice cream doesn't melt. So, yeah, yeah. It, would get, it would get tricky. Yeah, it would, it would, it would be. Yeah, it's the the convenience of technology is is we take it for granted. Anyways, so you had a million horses at at, at ni- in 1900 and then in the late 20th century the breed because of automobiles and everything was down to 1500 horses, shire horses left. Wow, that's so, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean they probably so they this probably is... do cost a lot to feed, I will say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, they're, they're such a novelty breed, but it's not just them in, in the United Kingdom. They're worried about Clydesdales and Suffolk horses that they just had 240 Shire horses born okay. last year, less than 200 Clydesdales yeah. and only 25 Suff- Suffolk horses. So this rare breed survival trust is trying to shed some light on them. Hopefully some hobbyists will get involved and start breeding them. I mean, I love horses. I, you know, I argue with people. I think they've done more for us than any other species. You know, in this, they talk about war horses. You know, they've died with us on all those battlefields. They, oh yeah, the stories are incredible. Yeah. They've, they've been really crazy. So it's just interesting to, we talk a lot about endangered species, which in my opinion is way more important just my my own personal opinion but sometimes it's nice to think about these endangered breeds that yeah it took a couple hundred years to get to a shire horse to what they are today mm-hmm. and it would be sad to lose such a amazing be. specimen yeah yeah what like you said an amazing specimen and just kind of this iconic yeah. workhorse too right and yeah, so yeah. drastically unique from a lot of the other breeds but yeah. it'll be interesting i know that there's people that are into uh, the heirloom species or mm-hmm. some of these older ones, um, and not letting even, even though they're domestic, they're not in danger, yeah. trying to keep the, uh, trying to keep the numbers up and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and I mean, making sure they stay di- diverse genetically, right? That's right, important. right. Yeah. So it's just, it's just interesting to, to think about, you know, and I know there's been some extinct species. One, <clears throat> oh, yeah. One that comes to mind is the Canadian pacer. So I used to joke around with Danielle, the, the Canadian horses. I would go, Hey, I put some in my book just for you. But the Canadian pacer was one that could like pace on icy roads and not oh, really like fall down. They so had yeah. really sturdy feet, uh-huh. but they're gone. They're oh. gone. They, they got bred out. Okay. <laughs> so now they just have a Canadian horse, which I guess says eh all the time or, ne, know, or ne, I don't know. Ne, ne, ne. ne. <laughs> Or a boat. So, My, anyways, they, they it, say hoof, it, it, hoof all the time. Hoof, hoof. <laughs> there you go, Danielle, just for you. So I thought that was interesting and uh, just a different uh, news story this week. 
Awesome. Well, for my next story that I've chosen, it's been all over the news here, especially in southeastern United States, probably nationally, but it's near and dear to my great state of Florida that's currently housing me. Um, and I, and I talk about the story as I'm packing, preparing for a big beach trip for my boys tomorrow. We're heading over to the Atlantic coast uh, to enjoy, enjoy the beaches over there, uh, for the day. It's one of our closer beaches, but also I wanted to avoid the West coast, uh, due to what is called the red tide that has been, and just briefly, well, this probably isn't going to be brief. Let's be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, because it is, it's, it's a very interesting story and interesting conservation story. And then it also brings up a lot of other issues. So, and so this red tide, it's, basically a type of algae Mm -hmm. so it's alive it's an organism it's a naturally occurring phenomenon especially around the southwest coast of florida Mm -hmm. and it comes annually here and there in fact these algaes are always in the water Mm -hmm. however when it's, it's considered a bloom so right now we have a red tide bloom off the southwestern shores of florida means that it's obviously blooming. So just think of them like a lot more, like right, they're, right. they're mul- they're multiplying. Uh, for instance, this red tide comes from a type of algae called K brevis. And mm-hmm. typically our concentrations are about a hundred cells per liter in this area. But recently uh, this red tide has been blooming or growing since uh, October, 2017. So October of last year, but now the cells are about 10 million cells per liter. Wow. So wow. a big, don't drink the a, water. Yeah. A big increase. And yes, in some spots, it's been counts of up to 140 million cells per liter. And you say, well, why? Who cares? Okay. So the, the, the ocean looks a little red. Right. right yada blada. Right. But what these, uh, what this red tide, these algae produce is called a brevitoxin and so toxin obviously means no bueno and they are in the air so thick right now that some people out of naples florida thought that the armed forces had poured nerve gas into the gulf and Hmm. as far as irritating and choking their eyes and their lungs so it creates this, this toxin that of course is obnoxious to people that are trying to enjoy the beach but then let's but obviously us people can leave the beach or not go to the beach that day, right? Right, 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 right. So these animals are exposed to this crazy amount of algae, which basically when they ingest it, it can cause gastrointestinal problems and neurological problems. And incidentally, people just say the animals almost look like they're comatose and then they obviously typically die. Mm-hmm. And so the animal, mm-hmm. the sea creatures being fect- affected out of the red tide in Southwest Florida are everything from fish, so mullet fish, catfish, puffer fish, snook trout, grunt, uh, and even goliath groupers, which we need to cover that in the podcast. Those guys are awesome and amazing. But also uh, crabs, um, eels, but also uh, also 80 mantis have washed ashore during this crisis and turtles, including uh, uh, the critically endangered Kemp Ridley sea turtle. Mm-hmm. And then even more recently, just last week, this past week, a juvenile whale shark. Yeah. Watch so that. Chris, yeah. I mean, we've, co- we, we've covered the whale shark. We've covered the 
uh, manatees and right. we're soon, soon we're going to be covering the sea turtle. Right. So these guys are being hit super hard due to this toxin and, or this algae that causes this toxin. And it's just really, once again, this is kind of a seasonal thing and it does happen in Florida. It just seems to be happening greater and stronger. And the other part that's really, uh, kind of a storm of, extra problems, if you will, That's, uh, is that we also have in Florida, we're known for, a lot of lakes are known for blue-green algae. Right, right, yep. And that's another algae that, once again, is naturally occurring. However, with the introductions of excess nutrient overloads, pollutions from fertilizer, sewage, agriculture, mm -hmm. stormwater, human activities, these blue-green or cyanobacteria blooms happen more frequently and last longer. So interestingly mm. enough, that's happening big time in some of our lakes, but one of the really big lakes in Florida is Lake Okeechobee. Because of overflow issues in that lake area, they've had to release some of the lake further for it to move downstream towards the oceans. And so when this blue-green algae moves from lakes towards the oceans, and in the oceans a lot of times it dies – and that's fine, but then it acts as food or more nutrients and also run off, run off mm -hmm. agricultural runoff, sewage, things like that, human activities and into our oceans also act as fuel to feed this, this red tide. tide so right. it's, it's basically, we're kind of getting a little bit of a double whammy here in Florida and then on top of that. So it's like, who do we, you know, what do we blame? Researchers are also blaming. Uh, the most recent hurricane here that came through this past year, Hurricane Irma, that came into Naples really hot and heavy, did a lot of damage there. Uh, that they, those churn things up and that causes more runoff. And that's obviously, that's not really man-made. Uh, although we could argue climate change. So mm -hmm. anyways, it's just kind of this perfect storm and some people are blaming humans, but a lot of people are like, well, let's just try to figure out the problem because all, all these innocent, I mean, Hundreds and thousands of fish, let alone then right. some manatees and other uh, mammals and or whale sharks, things like that are dying off, let alone all. I come from a beach community in Michigan and these poor beach right. communities that these business owners that are just, yeah. you know, and I hate to say it like, uh, yeah, I, I probably wouldn't travel that far south anyways down to Sarasota area or whatnot to go to the beach because it's further from my house. But I can see why the people that would normally go to that, choose to go to that beach might not want to go to this gross beach right now. Yeah. I mean, like I, I think we just talked in, maybe it was the, the last pod we did. I, I loved to go to Cocoa mm -hmm, Beach when mm -hmm. I was there. And if there's a red tide, I wouldn't go to Cocoa Beach. And, you know, when we go, we go to these restaurants and we eat out all the time and, and all these things. And so and rent, you know, either Airbnb or a condo or something like that. If, you have this red tide and it's the peak of travel season right now for you in the States. So yeah, I mean, it affects, there's a human right. cost too. It is. And it's, so it's, it's tough. It's, like there's debate on both I, sides. Like, is yeah. it human's fault and yeah. is it, or is it just a natural, obviously it's naturally in the water. It's in, there, there are going to be blooms. There was another big one back, mm -hmm. back in 2005 or six that followed another hurricane. So there's just, at mm -hmm. this point, there's not enough data to point the finger. Is it a hundred percent like human runoff mm -hmm. problems? these nutrients that are feeding all these blooms. Yeah. I think the answer in the lakes, in the, in the lakes in the center of the state. Yes, definitely. 
But they're trying to control that, and that's like a separate yeah, yeah. political, huge political issue in Florida that's not obviously not resolved or <laughs> probably won't be soon with our current government. Uh, yeah. But the ocean yeah. one's a little bit different. So a lot of researchers, experts say that it's, it's, it's both to blame. It's probably human-induced, somewhat natural. Right. A mix uh, of both, yeah. In the meantime, what can be done? That's always my thing. And, and, the, and there's all these wonderful volunteers that are going to clean yeah. up beaches and I would say go out and support your locals, mm. even if you maybe you just get to go food and eat it <laughs> from the beach restaurant and eat it at home yeah, yeah, yeah. or spread the yeah. word, uh, get people about any kind of runoff, things like that. Keep your beaches clean when you do go there uh, or any water. If you live near any water, uh, try to reduce your, your, yeah, your own yeah. pollution. <clears throat> you know, and then, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to, to see, you know, dealing with nature and, and these things come up and how we react. Right. And I think and unfortunately a lot of the reaction is like to want to point the finger and this and that, which that's good. You got, it's good yeah, to get through you, the problem. You got to know why, but yeah. Right. Well, and that's where these so. scientists are smart for trying to like fix it and not wait for government because government's so locked up in all of their, you know what, yeah. that they a lot of times don't yeah. get anything done. So in the meantime, uh, you got to try to figure, figure it out. And hopefully, hopefully the, t- I don't know. How, I mean, these things can bloom for a while. It's been it's been coming since October yeah. of last year. So I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a while. while. This, yeah, it's, it's obviously while. reached reached the news and it's reached more you know mm-hmm. epic le- levels than it has in the past ten or fifteen years. But yeah, yeah. yeah so well, let's uh, let's keep it in the ocean. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not. But not great news. It's okay. So a few weeks ago, I talked about the Southern resident orcas mm-hmm. and these are the pod that lives off Washington state in Canada. Sure. They're pretty famous. And it, yeah, it's the, the Salish seas. These are the ones that you see in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, the sound there. When I lived up there, I never did see them, but I know in the news I would see and they're like, Oh, you know, the, the, a pod of orcas are swimming around in, in the sound around there. Um, so I, I talked about how they were endangered. You know, this this subspecies or this group was endangered. Well, for the last two weeks in the news is this orca identified as J35. She has been carrying her dead calf with her for the last 16 days. 16 days. I That's incredible. I, I see this every day in my news feed. Uh, it's, you know, it's day, it's the next day, it's the next day. And I, and I can't imagine that calf. I don't know what's left of it. It's pretty horrific to think about, but apparently this, this female orca, she gave birth, the calf died within like the hour. And And obviously we don't know why, right? We don't know why. So yeah, looking at this, it, you know, what I was talking about was, you know, the reason these, these, Orcas are endangered or this pod's endangered is they're in a very busy waterway. So between Vancouver right. and Seattle. And, and then they were talking about the Canadian government wanting to get the oil pipeline from Alberta or whatever mm-hmm. over to Vancouver area. And that's just going to drastically increase boat traffic. And people are really worried about uh-huh. this, this pod. So in in the last three years, none of the calves born, I think it was three of them, have, did not survive. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And in the past 20 years, only 40 orcas have been born into this group, but 72 have died. Oh, wow. So they're in a way negative trajectory. Uh-huh, of course. So a lot of the other thing, too, is salmon. So that's their number one prey item. Mm-hmm. 
and there's there's just not enough salmon is what they think up there that you know some salmon species are endangered and so sure of course so they don't yeah 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 so that it, it brings up an interesting question so we're going to keep my eye on this obviously i make he is looking at this this female and i and angie's my behavior expert and i just wanted to you know i know certain species grieve and specifically i know elephants do they sure mm-hmm. will go yeah, and elf. pick yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely elephants and cetaceans, which obviously mm-hmm. those are whales and dolphins. So the mm-hmm. killer whale, the orca falls under that. Uh, magpies, the type of bird. I uh, mm-hmm. recently mm-hmm. was reading an article about crows. As Arthur, mm-hmm. did we just discuss it on the pod? If it was no, you were, I think crows. you were going to, yeah. Yeah, they do funerals. Um, so yeah, yes. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an emotion that animals experience. And of course, there's document documentation of this in mm-hmm, uh both mm-hmm. in you know in in the wild and some living under human care and then i would go to say that i there's been anecdotal evidence um i'm not sure i'd have to go back to the literature but there's been anecdotal evidence of wolves dogs geese um other other animals besides what you would Elf, you know, the, what we classify as the highly intelligent animals, such as cetaceans and, and elephants and chimpanzees. Right, right. And, and I would say, yeah, chimp- yeah, chimpanzees are on that list also of, uh, yeah, they are, they are, grief. they are. So, yeah, so, I just, yeah, it, it, it just for me, it brought up a lot because it, I remember a teaching moment I had with my students and, you know, I was up in class and I, and I said, do, do animals feel? And all the students laughed and these were, you know, animal science students, pre-vets, some are, you know, livestock, whatever. And they, it was like kind of taken as a joke that, that animals have feelings, you know? And I asked that, I said, really? do, do they, they, they like laughed like they didn't think they thought no. No. Yeah. Yeah. And really, I was like, huh. okay. And I was a little bit surprised, but you know, taking sure. the group, I was, you don't want to judge. Sure. Yeah. No, taking the, the group. And so I said, okay, let me ask you this. When you yell, you come home, your dog chewed up your couch and you yell at them. What do they do? They cower. cower. They're scared. Yeah. Right. Or they, or. Unless it was my, unless it was my rescue husky dog. I think he (laughs) just would give me the middle finger. (laughs) Well, that's a cat too. Sinatra, he he was, he was like, basically he was, I used to call him my dog cat. Yeah, Yeah. 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 But you know, or you, when you come home, like let's not say the dog chewed the couch. But let's just say you come home, the dog is like all over you. There's a greeting. They're wagging their tail. They're licking you. They're excited is a way to put mm-hmm. it. They're ha- they seem happy, you know, and not to yeah. anthropomorph- anthropomorphize animal feelings, but I was, I made the point that, yeah, we, you just can't look at animals as instinctual, instinctual robots. That is not what they are. Now we can't no. go and say, are they going to build a rocket and go to the moon? You know, it, it, they, they're not that level of advanced. I mean, Chris, when was the last time we did that? It's been a while. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, look who's <laughs> taking over the country. So yeah, we're, we're right. definitely de-evolving. Yeah, definitely. But so this just brought it up. It was interesting. So I did find a good study. I'm going to link this to it's, it's called animal emotions, exploring passionate nature natures it's just kind of a a, a paper we should talking do a whole about... pot i would love to do a whole pot yeah. on this we i mean okay okay maybe yeah. we can maybe we can 
you know, joy, fear, love, despair, and grief. I think it, it talks about mm-hmm. Jane Goodall observed Flint, an eight-year-old chimpanzee that when his mom died, he just basically withdrew from the groups, starved sure. himself and died. Yeah. You know, no, there's a, a great book out there called When, when Elephants Weep. Uh, yep. that's a little dated. Yeah. I think it's 95 or 96. Yeah. I, I read it, uh, either in college or after college. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm showing my mm-hmm. age here. I, I read it years and years and years after college. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I take that. Sorry. Mom brain. I read it when I was like five. So yeah, right. <laughs> it's what inspired. You were like, dude, that was, that's when you finished your PhD, right? That was like way before I got mine. Oh <laughs> yeah. gosh. I can't even do math on what would make me older or not older. It's, uh, it's uh, been a long, it's been a long week. But anyways, yes, but that it's a great book. Yeah. And, so, yeah, and there's, yeah, let's do that. Let's do and it. And I think that, uh, or just in general, it'd be Let's fun to hear from the listeners yeah. about their thoughts on what, like, I know, for instance, my dog, Gypsy, I love her, Gypsy girl. She, mm-hmm. we travel a lot and we take her a lot of places, uh, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. just locally if we're going in Florida. And so because she knows what packing means. And of course, because I have two little, oh, yeah. because she has yeah. two, because I have two little kids, mm-hmm. there's a lot of packing. So I just, unfortunately, mm-hmm. those days of just throwing a few things in my backpack and hitting the road are gone. <laughs> Yeah. Now I have yeah, a list yeah, yeah, of like, yeah. make sure and bring the baby yeah. monitor and the thermometer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. any, and 1400 yeah, but... snacks for the road. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But anyways, yep. it's a nightmare. Yeah. So yeah, but what I do is most of the time she gets to come with us. And so I actually pack her bag first. Okay. So she knows okay. her, her dog food, her That's bed, good. her bowls, her harness, a, few, yeah. a, a toy or two. She does. She basically is like me in my twenties. She doesn't get much in her bag, so she's easy to pack. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. always pack her first yeah. and set it off to the side. Just to, and honestly, like she then can she can relax on trips where we're yeah. traveling to Boston or Michigan, and unfortunately she can't come. That she is very nervous, upset. Yeah. Yes, she know because she, yeah. she yeah. knows we are leaving, and and it's not one. It's only one. It's one thing to be like, okay, she knows we're leaving, but another thing mm-hmm. for she's visibly like upset about it. And, and pouting yeah, yeah, and yeah, sad yeah, yeah. and ca- like she did yeah. something wrong. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I'd be, it'd be a fun podcast, but this, this poor, this poor yeah, orca mama, emotions, yeah. I, it'll be interesting. I, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's sad for her loss of her calf. I, I really hope uh, people yeah. do keep documenting this and do keep bringing awareness mm-hmm. about it. I don't think mm-hmm. any species, including these orcas, this pod will ever be saved unless people actually start caring about them. And sometimes yeah, yeah. some ways to care about something is to actually be touched by it, you know, or have a, yeah. So yeah, have yeah. a reaction from it. And I think if there are any na- orca naysayers out there, which obviously people that, you know, probably don't care about they're, them they're, in the wild. They're not listening. Yeah. I guess they're probably <laughs> they're not, not listening to, to this podcast. They're not listening to our podcast for <laughs> yeah. sure now. Oh my gosh. They yeah. But they're out there. They but, are definitely but, out but what there. I'm saying yeah. is I hope that this circulation is hitting their news feeds like it is ours. I mean, ours are our, yeah. our news feeds are obviously more animal oriented, but it's it's a the story's been pretty national, and so hopefully we can get some learn something from it, learn about these beautiful, amazing, intelligent, emotional creatures. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the scientists just reading this too. They're they are worried about her, and they they have a nickname for her. It's it's uh, something, but. J35 is how she's identified for the the science community. They are worried about her sure. mental health. Like this is not a normal grief behavior 
past this point. Like I, I guarantee you initially it was grief. I mean, she's, I guess it is a grief behavior, but now it's like, it's just, she's probably so stressed and they're like, right. she's not eating. Yeah, you know, obviously she's, she can't regain all her strength. Do you know after if this was her, do they know if this was her birth? first calf or she had other calves she's lost? Or? I, I didn't okay. pick up on that, but I mean, there literally are 50, 100 stories okay. out there on this. So if you just Google and I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find out some more and link it. But yeah, I like that idea of talking about animal emotions. Like that would be a good, good pod to maybe. Well, and you and I have been talking, I actually was thinking about this today. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, uh, we've talked about, I'd like to cover the dog in the new, f- yeah, in, that's true. in the yeah. future. Um, mm-hmm. maybe after we reboot after our, uh, once after we hit our, our uh, year mark. Uh, mm-hmm. and then I was thinking like, well, should we, what kind of specialist interview could we have? And for a dog, because I yeah. mean, we, we could do a vet, but every, you know, vets, they're going to have a medical perspective, which is great, yeah. but it'll almost be more fun to interview yeah. like a dog psychologist or something like, are we, yeah. am I crazy? Does my dog know that I'm packing and get upset about yeah, it yeah, yeah. or not? Well, and I mean, reading this story too, and this, or the story, this, the scientific article, animal emotions, it there's a lot of research that needs to be done. That's basically what it's well, saying. That's... It's like, Hey, we have this evidence, but we don't, you know, it, it, it can lead to conclusions from our perspective. Like, yeah, that to us, that looks like a, a feeling or sure. some sort sure. of, you know, advanced behavior, but we don't have the research in neurobiology or endocrinology connecting that, beha- those behaviors to other things. Correct. So, we need more more studies, basically. I know. I so, wish somebody would give me going. a job. That'd be like a dream job of <laughs> yeah. mine for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right. We definitely need more more research to kind of support some of these claims or uh, to figure them out in the different levels. But I, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would I would love to see the science backing it up. In the interim, yeah, it does pose a lot of it pulls at your heartstrings and it pull it incites a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Now, I've got a really cool sci-fi story coming up, but you actually have an inspirational story next, right? I do. Yeah, speaking of, we were talking about orcas, and now we, we went from hoofs and horns, uh, now to the ocean. To the oceans, all, yeah. To the oceans. I've been I'm becoming like a huge ocean fan. Not that I wasn't before, but uh, this podcast is really just... We've dove so in deep cool in the ocean and I, I'm really yes, enjoying it. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, there's some cool stuff. Yeah, but this one is interesting. So this is, this goes to show like when you and I like, ah, oh, Chris, ah, oh, Angie, are we doing the right thing? Like we should probably go have like real jobs, which we should. And I'm getting one. So yay for me. Yeah. Um, even though it's part time, but whatever. Uh, yeah. but need money. Yeah. Mo- <laughs> need to eat. Need, need yeah. food. Uh, yeah. So. But this one is about, it's never too late to get involved in conservation. So for mm-hmm. any listener out there that's like, well, I love animals, but I have a desk job and I can't do conservation. Right. I'm going to probably not say the name right, but Elfin, yes, I think it's Elfin Pew would disagree. Mm-hmm. So he was in his early 50s and when he first became a guide on whale watching trips. And then from there, that led to his current position as a volunteer for Marine Mammal Survey Team Leader. Okay. Okay. And he's also part of a wildlife guide and a trustee for ORCA. And that's an an acronym for Organization Protecting Mm -hmm. Whales and Dolphins in the UK and Europe. So he's studying 
cetaceans mm-hmm. and uh, being mm-hmm. a tour guide for them and also a board of trustees. And we'll link us, we'll put a story. It's a really cool story uh, on our show notes. But basically, interestingly enough, uh, Chris and I can probably relate to this. Uh, Elfin, if I'm sorry, if I'm not saying your name right, but uh, his first job, he was actually a zookeeper and took care of animals mm-hmm. when he was a lot younger. But then he became a police officer for 30 years until he retired. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, okay. I guess they get to retire earlier than we do here in the United States over there. Yeah, it's like the yeah, military. Yeah, it's like, it's if, yeah, if you've done 20 years or 30 years, you get a nice mm-hmm. pension. But anyways, he always loved birds and mammals. And and his interest, his interest in marine conservation didn't really take off until his like earlier mid-50s. And so he doesn't have a degree at all and definitely doesn't have a degree in marine mm-hmm. scientists. But he's done a lot of courses relating to cetaceans, cetaceans, that's whales and dolphins, and seabird ID and biology. And they basically opened him up to the literature about marine life and particularly whales and dolphins and porpoises. So he's really self-taught, which is hard. I mean, that is a little bit of a learning curve versus someone who might go down a marine biology route with a teacher who gives them a lot of the information. But that goes to show how passionate he was. And he, mm-hmm. yeah, he's just basically people that he's worked with have been awesome and they've helped him with his quote unquote career development. And for now, he's just, he's just spreading yeah, the mean, love yeah. and really he's out on a boat and he's doing what he's passionate about and getting other people excited about uh, whales, dolphins and porpoises and doing great for their conservation. Cause I know they do like a lot of IDing and, you know, learning, like you said, learning mm. about what individuals are where is very important for tracking them. So hats off to you, Elf and Poof, or Pew, Pew. Pew. <laughs> Pew, Pew. Poor dude. <laughs> I hope he's a listener and he's like, oh, I yeah, know. We'll he's like those darn Americans. Here. But yeah, no, just, uh, I was just a real. That's awesome. Yeah. I just think that it's just never too late to do your part. And you can do a lot like he did, obviously. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm, got mm-hmm. really, really involved. Or you could probably, or you can do a little. Uh, I always, yeah, just- I, yeah, um, I might, at the zoo where I used to work at, there was what we call docents or volunteers. And mm-hmm. they, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of them were 60 or older and they could, and then they're sometimes kids too, like to help out. And yeah, they're not paid, but they come to the zoo once or twice a week and handle animals and help educate. And, and they have to go through rigorous training, of course, to get right, certified. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's, I mean, yeah. obviously that's just one option, um, especially if you're, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. a natural born educator. But yeah, so don't ever think yeah, that you cool. can't yeah. get involved with, of course, there's tons of education you can do through social media and telling your friends about all these cool animals and cool podcasts and conservation sites. And, but in the same instance, there's definitely stuff that you can do. It's never too late. In fact, right, right, that right, might yeah. be me out on a boat someday with Elfin. Cause I know I keep wanting, they actually, I, I follow again. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, the website, uh, com. If you can give a little plug for us, <laughs> but I do follow whale watching out of Auckland uh-huh. and they saw a blue whale in her calf the other day. I was like, I got to go yes, on this boat. See, that's what I'm talking I about. Got to go on this boat. Yeah. So I will will try to uh, get up and do some whale watching because I, yeah, I'm dying to see blue whales. You know, or get, get whenever Doctor Getz goes out there, I need Absolutely. to go with her. So I know I sniped this one from you, Angie, but <laughs> I, I, I had to talk about this one. This is insanity. 
insanity. I'm like smiling from ear so to I ear right now. Too- I know. I am just amazed. This is so science fiction. So the title is Worms Frozen in Permafrost for Up to 42,000 Years Come Back yes. to Life. Like what yeah. in the Let's re- In case heck- you were you know, not paying attention to the podcast, yelling at your kids or texting yeah. or something, let's back up at yeah. 42,000. Not 42, oh, not 4,200. Three yes. zeros. 42,000 years. Yes. Yeah, these These are round worms. They have, were in the frozen in the mm-hmm. permafrost. So in a petri dish, they 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 took them out in Siberia. They took them to the lab. In a petri dish, they came back to life and started right. eating. Yeah, and moving around. They were alive. It's, it's alive. Like that is crazy. Because I, again, going back to this whole. I knew you'd thing, go there. I'm like Chris loves the things. Yeah, I was, no, I go. I know. But I. But I did because I was like, okay, we have these mammoth carcasses. Like I know they have a whole carcass except the head. Like the whole body was frozen, and I was like, okay, there you go. There's your cells to clone the mammoth. Just just grow those in a petri dish. Blah 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 blah. Well, DNA right. degrades over time. So I so that's kind of where I I looked some stuff up. The so first of all, these well, are the oldest so, living animals. First on the of planet, all, it's so period. funny. Yeah, well, and it goes <laughs> to show the difference between period. you and me. And I was like. Dang, I would love a 42, uh, 42,000 long nap, year long nap. Could you imagine, like, waking up from that? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be oh, like, God. what? Oh, my God. Yeah. So I didn't, you, you oh, know, I kind of stopped thinking yeah. about it from there. I, I, of course, I thought a little bit about the DNA and how this, and what, it, what advances can be made as uh, far as chiroprotection and chiroconservation and even astrobiology and some really cool things like that. But, but yeah, I figured I, I figured yeah. I'd let I'd save my brain energy and let you go down the the route of cloning. Yeah, so even you know even um these mammoth carcasses that are frozen, the DNA breaks down. So that's why these sure. cells they can't regenerate them. So what the scientists have done is they've they've mapped the genome of the mammoth. Now they know the genetic code from A to Z, sure. and then they they're going in the blanks. Yeah, and then they're editing. So it is like what they talk about in Jurassic Park. Oh, we used you know dino DNA and frog DNA and combined it. And here we have these dinosaurs kind of what they've done, or that's why the, the mammoth clone is just going to be a hybrid of an elephant. They're right. just going to manipulate the DNA to what the, the mammoth is. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how in the heck did the DNA on these things? But anyway, so I went down the DNA path real quick. Half-life of DNA is about 500 years. Okay. So what that means is it starts to break down the backbone of that holds DNA molecules together. So looking at this scientific article, it said under ideal conditions, DNA would last about 6.8 million years. And that means at the end of that, every single bond would be broken. Okay. Okay. But you, but what's cool is we can still read DNA after like, if it's a million and a half years old, we can still read it. But after that, it, it really can't read what it was, what base pair it was, all that stuff. The oldest DNA we've ever read is about 800,000 years. Okay. Old. Okay. So how in the heck did these nematodes so, and these roundworms survive? We can read it, but it's not functioning. But yet in these nema- no, no, in these no. nematodes, it obviously is fine. Yeah, they said, fine. you know, this is the first multicellular organism for long-term cryobiosis. Right. Yeah, the so, last there's been they've done one and I don't know if it was a it was nematode. Uh mm-hmm. and it was 39 years. 
So we right. went from 39 years to 42,000. 42,000. <laughs> Holy <laughs> so, shnikes. So they just said that these things have some adaptive mechanisms and it's going to have some effects on cryomedicine, cryobiology, astrobiology. I mean, things like, you know, if we ever did travel to Alpha Centauri, you know, how long would it take? How many hundreds of years? You know, I'm talking way before you and I are, are long way past. This is going to sleep and coming back in 40,000 years and we'll have the technology to do this. Yeah. But, you know, if human exploration of space and you go into cryo sleep, you know, we in sci-fi movies. So we can study this nematode, see what mechanisms it has and start applying it to medicine, things like that. So that was crazy. Yeah. It's crazy sci-fi. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just, and we, and I think the thing is like with nematodes in general, they definitely have their ability to withstand certain extreme bio- environmental condition is are just basically kind of programmed mm-hmm. in their DNA, certain ones. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what exactly is what exactly is that? What does what does it mean? I think is to be to be determined. Yeah. But I, it's definitely super inter- interesting for cryo yeah. conservation. Or it made oh, it made me crazy. think like, geez, yeah, what is up in that ice on Mars, right? Type deal. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we don't want to yeah. Un- unearth uh, trans. Was it Transformers? I don't remember uh, one of those movies. Well, Chris, al- along those lines, but much like let's get back to earth and to uh, something that we can yeah (laughs) yeah something that's some sci-fi novel like i read that i'm like i just that's crazy whatever we need to talk about it but so i'm glad you talked about it but this this is a little bit more angie speed (laughs) so uh as far as like wildlife news is kind of cool or medical news is Recently, researchers reported out of Guelph, University of Guelph, which is Canada. So another another shout out to our, our lovely mm-hmm. Canadians. Uh, have reported oh, Canada, that yeah. leopard geckos, yeah, which is a type of just it's obviously a type of gecko, duh. But uh, they're really cute. I work I used to work with them um, at the zoo, but they're they're actually kind of popular in the pet trade, and they're not endangered. Uh, I'm sure certain types of species, yeah, are, yeah. in general, yeah. they're okay. they're there's a lot of them. But they, a new research has shown that leopard geckos can make new brain cells. Hmm. So I don't think they can withstand 42,000 years of cryopreservation. Right, right. Although that hasn't been proven yet, so who knows. But what the researchers out of Guelph have discovered that these leopard geckos have a type of stem cell that allow them to create new brain cells and provides in this also provides evidence that the lizards have the ability to regenerate parts of their brain after injury. Hmm. Okay. So they're constantly renewing these brain brain right. cells. And this is something that humans are really notoriously bad at doing, right? Especially right. super at, slow, like 40, super 50 slow. years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and, our brains degrade. Yeah. And that's why head injuries can be obviously very traumatic and horrific. Take, yeah. And not a lot of times not able to bounce back from them. Yeah. So, it's really interesting that uh, it's exciting because basically this provides evidence of new neur- neuron formation in this, mm-hmm. and stem cells in the leopard gecko's brain. And th- there has been similar studies in zebrafish, fish, and salamanders. This work is using lizards, which is the next step up the evolutionary tree closer right. to humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... It'll just be interesting to see how 
this can translate into human medicine and what we can learn from this cute little gecko that, um, and, and this is just one species of gecko. I mean, who knows what you and I always, it's, Others, a, yeah. yeah, it's a common theme on the podcast is like when people don't want to save animals or conserve animals or let yeah. certain species go extinct. I'm all, I'm like, but we don't know enough about them. And even if you don't care about them or their behavior or their ecology or yeah. whatever, what if they can help us humans? And so yeah, I think yeah. any, most people listen to this podcast or most people in general, obviously have been touched mm. by somebody that's suffered some type of head injury or right. catastrophic injury. Yeah. Uh, neuro, you know, neurological disease, Alzheimer's, mm. something. So yeah, the mysteries for probably a lot of these regenerative issues lie somewhere in our ancestors right. and we kind of deserve it to them and to ourselves to try to save, save them. Yeah. And it's, you know, just kind of how we decipher some of this is we will learn what cellular mechanisms are driving that, you know, like in the cryobiology with these nematodes or with this leopard gecko, scientists will figure out, okay, mechanically, how does this work in cell biology? Then we can start looking at applying those treatments to higher order of species. So that's why we talked about rats. Mm -hmm. You know, in mice, exactly. we, you know, we gave a nod to, uh, to mice a couple of weeks ago. And then if it works in mice, that's really exciting. Then we move on to higher order of mammals and then finally do human trials. So, you know, yeah, we're years and years away from something like that, but these initial discoveries are huge. These species are huge, huge, huge impact. And that's the thing. Like, re- like I said, the regenerative medicine, you know, they think the, the, a 200 year old person, some biologists believe, has already been right. born, is walking on earth. They just don't know it yet because we're going to have regenerative medicine at some point where we can slow down or reverse it. Yeah. Aging. And I could have used some yeah, kind we're, we're of something regenerative when I was sick with the flu the <laughs> other week. week. Oh yeah. my goodness gracious. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, exactly, Chris. And yeah, I, yeah, so yeah. that's the thing is like, we're just, we're at the infancy of knowing. Obviously, what uh, we what the adapt- adaptations that you and I, you know, talk about every week. Of, this is so cool. This speech, this no. naked mole rat know, does this. This uh, lizard does yeah. this. This sea dragon yeah. does that. Yeah, the dads. So yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Sea dragons. Uh, uh, well, seahorses get yeah. pregnant. Sea dragons. It's not quite a true pregnancy, yeah. but. Yeah, so we have a lot to learn. Animals have a lot to teach us, and maybe you don't believe that they grieve, that certain ones don't grieve, but from mm-hmm. some of their physiological adaptations and standpoint, you have to give you know hats off to them. And if you know brilliant scientists can mm-hmm. figure out some of the ways they do some of these ad- adaptations, it would only benefit potentially benefit humans and our loved ones and our our kids, yeah. kids, 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 and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So. And then just finally, Angie, species of the week. I know this has kind of gone long, so I'll just make it quick, but this really awesome looking frog. I know in Central and South America, we're finding these all the time. This one's really beautiful. It, it, again, I'll put the pictures on the show notes. It's top side is, is green. Underside is like a poison dart frog, but it orange with like some, it's like tiger striping. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Tiger stripes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's gorgeous, really cool. Gorgeous amber yellow eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, amphibian conser- conservationist Andrew Gray, from the Manchester Museum, he named it the Sylvia's tree frog, and he named it after his granddaughter, which is really cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So cute. yeah, it was uh, yeah collected in Panama in 1925, but they again they 
they confused it with the the splendid tree frog, but now that they've gone back and looked at it and said, no, this is its own species. And so now it's been officially described. And so there you go. So we have a new frog. They're so beautiful. Awesome. God, those poison dart frogs are just amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super charming. Yeah. Yeah, We'll we'll put a link on the show notes so you can enjoy this cute little guy as well. Yeah, he's cool. He's cool. All right. Well, I will see you in a few days. We got a new animal coming coming next week. Yes, it's going to be uh, a really exciting week. I know. I'm yep. I'm looking forward to it, and it's definitely yeah. a species uh, right up my alley. That'll be your hint. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Bye. <laughs>